Chapter 15, Part 2 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905 by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. President Roosevelt, Part 2. All these acts were not only contrary to public policy, but they were in violation of two statutes which have already been described the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887 and the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Note 11, page 684. Until the present time, however, these laws had to all intents and purposes remained a dead letter. The Interstate Commerce Commission had been practically deprived of any effective power to curb the railways, owing to the fact that its decisions were subject to review by the federal courts, which were jealous of any assumption of judicial authority by the Commission. Small shippers who appealed to the Commission against the railways were compelled to follow up a long and tedious course of litigation, in which after many years no substantial results were reached, and of which the loss involved in the delay was sufficient to beggar men of ordinary means. The railways had at their disposal the ablest legal talent in the country, and against this a private person, however great his injuries, was absolutely helpless. The Sherman Antitrust Act was also difficult of enforcement, partly because its phraseology was so sweeping as apparently to condemn both lawful and unlawful business enterprises, and also because the trusts were protean in their character. Chartered by individual states, when attacked by federal law, they pretended to be only local corporations. When prosecuted by the state officials, they claimed exemption from such prosecution on the ground that they were engaged in commerce between the states. It was plain enough that these powerful and lawless combinations could not be effectively assailed either by individuals or by the states, but that only the strong hand of the national government could take them by the throat and force them from their attitude of insolent defiance. The willful violations of law from which all sections of the country were suffering aroused the indignation of the President, while the difficulty of suppressing them against the opposition of United Capital appealed to his fighting spirit. By his direction, therefore, the Attorney General moved against the most obnoxious of the trusts. This officer was Mr. Philander C. Knox of Pennsylvania, who had been appointed late in President McKinley's administration to succeed Mr. J. W. Griggs. Mr. Knox was a lawyer of very great ability. He had for years been counsel for several large corporations, among them the Carnegie Steel Company. He knew their methods well and could search out all the crevices in their armor. Until this time, however, he had remained inactive. The press had urged him to prosecute the trust, and because he had not done so he had received the popular nickname of Sleepy Phil. He was, however, merely waiting for instructions, and no sooner did the President speak the word than Mr. Knox revealed himself to be a highly trained and powerful prosecutor whose client was the nation. He secured an injunction against the Beef Trust, restraining it from raising and lowering prices in collusion and from other practices which had become notorious. Again, at the direction of the President, he attacked the Northern Securities merger, asking for an injunction to prevent this railway combination from controlling the companies involved in it. The motion was made before the United States District Court in Minnesota under the Antitrust Law of 1890. Vigorous measures such as this stirred all the corporate interests to anger. They and their journalistic mouthpieces began to speak of the President in terms of mingled hatred and contempt. After the easy-going tolerance of Mr. McKinley, the energetic purpose of President Roosevelt gave them an unpleasant shock. They had come to regard themselves as almost divinely commissioned to disregard the laws which were made for other citizens, and to look upon themselves as above and beyond restraint from any source. 
Their feelings were not assuaged by some very pointed utterances of the President made during a journey through New England in the summer of 1902 and in a visit to the Middle West in September of the same year. These utterances expressed only the most elemental principles of justice and right reason, yet the lawless financiers and the editors whose living depended on financial favors viewed many sentences which Mr. Roosevelt spoke as being revolutionary if not anarchical. Thus, in Providence, note 12, page 687, the President said, The great corporations which we have grown to speak of rather loosely as trusts are the creatures of the state, and the state not only has the right to control them, but it is in duty bound to control them wherever the need of such control is shown. It is idle to say that there is no need for such supervision. There is, and a sufficient warrant for it is to be found in any one of the admitted evils appertaining to them. The immediate necessity in dealing with trust is to place them under the real and not the nominal control of some sovereign to which, as its creatures, the trust shall owe allegiance and in whose course the sovereign's orders may be enforced. Again at Boston, note 13, page 687, the President declared, So far as the antitrust laws go, they will be enforced. No suit will be undertaken for the sake of seeming to undertake it. Every suit that is undertaken will be begun because the great lawyer and upright man whom we are fortunate enough to have as Attorney General, Mr. Knox, believes that there is a violation of the law which we can get at, and when the suit is undertaken, it will not be compromised except upon the basis that the government wins. And at Cincinnati he said, Note 14, page 687 In dealing with the big corporations which we call trusts, we must resolutely purpose to proceed by evolution and not revolution. The evils attendant upon overcapitalization alone are, in my judgment, sufficient to warrant a far closer supervision and control than now exists over the great corporations. We do not wish to destroy corporations, but we do wish to make them subserve the public good. All individuals, rich or poor, private or corporate, must be subject to the law of the land and the government will hold them to a rigid obedience. The biggest corporation, like the humblest private citizen, must be held to strict compliance with the will of the people as expressed in the fundamental law. The rich man who does not see that this is in his interest is indeed short-sighted. When we make him obey the law, we ensure for him the absolute protection of the law. Note 15, page 688. These strong, frank, manly sentences struck a responsive chord throughout the nation. They seemed to clear the air which had become clogged and gross with the miasma of materialism. But they were read with resentment by the men who for years had thought of the law of the land merely as something which their hired lawyers could artfully circumvent. Mr. Roosevelt's popularity and a certain fear which he had already inspired prevented open attacks upon him by members of his own party. But from this moment there was instituted in the venal press and through the myriad agencies which lawless wealth controlled, an underhanded campaign to discredit him and to prevent, if possible, his nomination for a second term of office. Meanwhile, however, the country was receiving a vivid object lesson as to the evils of monopoly. Until now it was the people of the West who had suffered most and whose complaints had been both loud and bitter. But in 1902, the people of the East in their turn were made to know that corporate greed could strike unerringly and unpityingly at the welfare of every section. It has already been explained in the course of this narrative, note 16, page 689, 
how the coal-carrying railways of Pennsylvania had, in violation of their charters and of the fundamental law, secured possession of practically all the anthracite coal mines of that district which, indeed, furnished the hard coal supply of the entire country. Early in 1902, a dispute arose between the mine owners, that is to say the officials of the railways, and the miners in their employ. The latter had formed an organization known as the United Mine Workers of America, at the head of which was Mr. John Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell was a man who had once worked in the coal mines, but who had educated himself by close study in his spare hours, and who had found time to read law and to investigate economic questions and labor conditions in the United States. He was a man of great intelligence, of superior organizing ability, and of inflexible integrity. He had gained the confidence of the miners, and his heart had been wrung by the hardships which they had experienced and which he himself at one time had shared. The mine owners compelled the men in their employ to purchase their supplies at the company's stores, to employ the company's doctors, and to live in the houses which the company furnished them, all at the company's own price. Note 17, page 689. These and other grievances led the miners to ask for an increase of wages and for a recognition of the union. On February 14th, Mr. Mitchell addressed a letter to the railway presidents requesting a joint conference. This request was curtly refused. Again, on May 8th, it was proposed to Mr. George F. Baer, president of the Reading Coal and Iron Company, to submit the miners' claims to arbitration. Mr. Baer replied contemptuously that anthracite mining is a business and not a religious, sentimental, or academic proposition. Therefore, on May 12th, a strike was ordered and 150,000 miners at once ceased to work. Throughout the summer, the strike continued, the mine owners endeavoring with no success to replace the men who had gone out. There was, as is always the case, some violence on the part of individual strikers, and these sporadic acts the corporation-ridden portions of the press exaggerated, so as to make them seem indicative of a reign of terror. On the whole, however, the strikers were orderly, and showed far more respect for law than did the railway presidents whose very ownership of the coal mines was prohibited by the constitution of the state. As the months dragged on, the country's available coal supply began to be depleted, and a coal famine was obviously impending with the advent of the winter. In early September, the retail price of hard coal, which was normally about $5 per ton, advanced to $12, and within a few days to 14 The poor who purchased it by the pailful were obliged to pay something like one cent a pound. By September 24th, no coal yard in the city of New York had on hand more than 200 tons of coal whereas a year before the average stock had been at least 2,000 tons. Many dealers began to refuse all but their regular customers, and to these they doled out only a small supply of fuel at prices which kept increasing every day. Gas stoves and coke and kerosene were substituted for coal in many families, but the price of gas advanced, the coke supply was quite inadequate, and kerosene was manifestly unsuited for heating purposes when the weather should become extremely cold. On September 26, several schools in New York were closed and the pupils were sent home in order that the fuel on hand might be saved for the winter months. Note 18, page 691. Kindling wood was practically unattainable. On September 30th, hard coal brought $20 a ton, and by October 1st, as much as $28 and $30 was demanded. The widespread distress caused by the coal famine led to innumerable appeals to the governor of Pennsylvania and at last to the President of the United States. 
Apart from the merits of the strike, it was plain to everyone that a few selfish men, having secured a complete monopoly of one of the necessities of life, were abusing their power with a stolid indifference both to public opinion and to the health and comfort of the people. It was noted with indignation that long lines of cars laden with coal blocked the lines of the coal-carrying railways in New Jersey, at a time when even so much as a bucketful could with difficulty be procured to warm the dwellings of the poor. The mine owners had thousands upon thousands of tons within easy reach of the market, yet they refused to sell, hoping that the general suffering would react against the miners and that either state or national troops would be employed to break the strike. But their schemes produced a very different result. Detestation of them became well-nigh universal, and a general sympathy was given to the miners who had struck. It was proposed in many quarters that the United States government should take forcible possession of the coal mines and work them under the right of eminent domain. Even the least radical suggestion looked to some exercise of the president's power to save the country from the horrors of the famine. In the city of New York, a coal riot was dreaded. The mayor, Mr. Seth Lowe, telegraphed to the president, The welfare of a large section of the country imperatively demands the immediate resumption of anthracite coal mining. In the name of the city of New York, I desire to protest through you against the continuance of the existing situation which, if prolonged, involves at the very least the certainty of great suffering and heavy loss to the inhabitants of this city, in common with many others. The governor of Massachusetts hurried to Washington to beg the president in some manner to find a way out of the existing crisis, which was becoming more acute each week. On the other hand, the representatives of capital assumed a threatening attitude and evidently meant to end the president's political career if he should dare to intervene. Oddly enough, the people of the West felt little interest in the outcome of the strike. They used soft coal instead of anthracite. And though the price of this had also steadily advanced, they experienced no such pinch as did the eastern cities. Hence, the Western press and the political leaders of that section advised the president not to interfere. Of course, in his official capacity, he had no power to act. The coal strike, though national in its consequences, was local in its origin and progress. If he moved at all, it must be as a private citizen, though whatever action he might take would be made significant by the dignity of the great office which he held. It was a position of extreme embarrassment. The Secretary of the Navy afterwards described just how a decision was ultimately reached. He said, I remember the President sitting with his injured leg in a chair while the doctors dressed it. Note 19, page 693. It hurt, and now and then he would wince a bit, while he discussed the strike and the appeals for help that grew more urgent with every passing hour. The outlook was grave. It seemed as if the cost of interference might be political death. I saw how it tugged at him, just when he saw chances of serving his country which he had longed for all the years to meet. This... It was human nature to halt. He halted long enough to hear it all out. The story of the suffering in the big coast cities, of schools closing, hospitals without fuel, of the poor shivering in their homes. Then he set his face grimly and said, Yes, I will do it. I suppose that ends me, but it is right, and I will do it. Note 20, page 693 Having come to this decision, the President telegraphed to the railway presidents, to the presidents of the Anthracite District Unions, and to Mr. John Mitchell, asking them to meet him in Washington on October 3rd. On the day appointed, these persons accordingly assembled. The mine owners were headed by Mr. George F. Baer, and the labor representatives by Mr. Mitchell. 
There were present also the Attorney General of the United States, the Commissioner of Labor, and the President's private secretary. The meeting began with an embarrassing silence. The opposing delegates sat eyeing each other with looks of evident hostility. Then the President read to them a statement in which he said that he spoke neither for the mine owners nor for the miners, but for the American people. I disclaim any right or duty to intervene in this way upon legal grounds or upon any official relation that I bear to the situation. But the urgency and the terrible nature of the catastrophe impending over a large portion of our people in the shape of a winter fuel famine impel me after much anxious thought to believe that my duty requires me to use whatever influence I personally can bring to end a situation which has become literally intolerable. In my judgment, the situation imperatively requires that you meet upon the common plane of the necessities of the public. With all the earnestness there is in me, I ask that there be an immediate resumption of operations in the coal mines, in some such way as will, without a day's unnecessary delay, meet the crying needs of the people. I do not invite a discussion of your respective claims and positions. I appeal to your patriotism to the spirit that sinks personal considerations and makes individual sacrifices for the general good. Note 21, page 694 No sooner had the President finished reading this carefully prepared address than Mr. Mitchell leaped to his feet and said in a loud, clear voice, I am much pleased, Mr. President, with what you say. We are willing that you shall name a tribunal which shall determine the issues that have resulted in the strike and if the gentleman representing the operators will accept the award or decision of such a tribunal, the miners will willingly accept it, even if it be against our claims. Mr. Bear's face flushed red, and he and his associates were obviously disconcerted. But after a moment's pause, they emphatically rejected Mr. Mitchell's proposal. Mr. Bear offered on his side to submit any special grievance to the decision of the Court of Common Pleas in the districts where the mines were situated. This offer was declined by Mr. Mitchell. The President then asked his visitors to retire for consultation and to return in the afternoon. At this second meeting, the operators read, one after another, long statements which had evidently been prepared for them by their legal advisers. Their tone throughout was one of studied insolence toward the President himself and of hatred toward the striking miners. They intimated that Mr. Roosevelt had failed in his duty that he should long since have broken the strike by the employment of the regular army, and that the responsibility for the existing situation rested largely upon him. They called the government a contemptible failure if it can secure the lives and property and comfort of the people only by compromising with the violators of law and the instigators of violence and crime. The counsel for the Delaware and Hudson Bay Company, David B. Wilcox, addressed the President in a most arbitrary fashion and demanded of him that he do his duty. The operators evidently intended to rouse the President to an outburst of anger and thereby to put him in the wrong, but he kept his temper perfectly. Note 22, page 695. As did also the labor leaders. And the conference presently adjourned having, as it seemed, accomplished no result. Note 23, page 695. Such, however, was not the case. The indignation of the whole country was aroused by the refusal of the operators to accept the arbitration of the President of the United States. Mr. Bear was widely quoted as having in a letter to a friend spoken of himself and his associates as those Christian men to whom God in his infinite wisdom has entrusted the property interests of this country. 
that mr bear ever wrote these words was denied and there is no good reason for ascribing them to him yet at the time they were accepted as authentic and they served to suffuse the public anger with a deep disgust mr roosevelt had now the entire nation behind him and whatever he might do was certain to receive the approval of his countrymen there was in new york at that time a financier whose name was known throughout the civilized world for the power which he exercised over other capitalists and especially over the railway owners in nineteen hundred an earlier coal strike had begun it was near the time of the presidential election and a labor outbreak then would have jeopardized the success of the republican candidates this gentleman at that period had by his own personal influence forced the mine owners to make concessions to the miners whereby the strike was for a while averted in yielding to him the operators had told him we concede this now but you must promise never again to ask it of us and he had promised there is an interesting story which seems to rest upon good authority and which may be repeated here though with due reserve it tells how this gentleman was in a private yacht then lying in the north river to him it is said that in the evening there came from washington the secretary of war mr elihu root a personal acquaintance and one of the ablest lawyers in the united states in the sumptuous cabin of the yacht mr root went over the whole situation and urged with all his eloquence that the great financier should once more use his influence to end the strike to the request made many times and in many ways the cold refusal was returned then the secretary changed his tone i have given you a chance to do this of your own free will but you have refused i am now instructed to inform you that the president will appoint a commission to inquire very strictly into the legality of the connection between the railways and the mines and that this commission will publish the exact truth so that the whole country may know it at the head of this commission the president will place a gentleman not of his own party but one in whose word and in whose courage the people will place implicit confidence the financier shot a keen look from his steely eyes who is this person he asked with an accent partly of defiance and partly of curiosity his name said secretary root is grover cleveland and i may add that as the result of such a report the persons who shall be found to have violated the law and who are thereby responsible for the existing distress will be criminally indicted by a federal grand jury note twenty four page six ninety seven the interview terminated late that night and on october thirteenth the operators made a formal offer to the president to submit all matters in dispute to a commission note twenty five page six ninety seven of five men to be appointed by the president the offer was accepted by mr mitchell on behalf of the miners and on october twenty third work was resumed and the great coal strike was broken it had continued for five months and it was estimated to have entailed a loss of more than one hundred million dollars because of what the president had done he received the unstinted praise of a great majority of americans while in europe his name was spoken with sincere respect as of one who had done a very big thing and an entirely new thing note twenty six page six ninety eight only the representatives of predatory capital were incensed but for the time they took refuge in a sullen silence among themselves however they had marked the president down for political destruction the succeeding year passed quietly enough save for a few slight ripples on the surface of international relations 
In January, much feeling was excited among the American people by a joint naval expedition sent by Great Britain, Italy, and Germany into Venezuelan waters for the purpose of enforcing certain pecuniary claims and of redressing grievances. The German ships shelled several Venezuelan forts and sank a few insignificant Venezuelan ships, besides blockading the most important harbors. The United States was not directly interested, for the three foreign powers had disclaimed any desire for territorial acquisitions in Venezuela. Nevertheless, perhaps because Germany was involved, there existed some uneasiness. The president studiously declined to interfere. He was invited to act as arbitrator, but wisely refused to do so. He sent a fleet into West Indian waters and used his influence to secure a settlement of the affair. This was arranged at Washington, and the three European powers made easy terms with Venezuela. On the surface, the affair was but a momentary incident, yet it afforded a new proof of American influence in world politics. Foreign comment was decidedly significant. The Algemeine Zeitung of Vienna declared resentfully that the United States had gained the hegemony of the whole Western Hemisphere. Continuing its comment, it said, Europe has displayed a nervous anxiety to appease American diplomacy. The interested powers looked on enviously. Europe was united on one point only, the desire not to rouse the antipathy of the American people. Even the Allies wished to shake each other off. The close of the Venezuelan dispute is equivalent to a victory of America over Europe. Note 27, page 699. Subsequently, the German Kaiser, seeing the futility of a policy of irritation, made frank overtures of friendship toward the United States and of personal goodwill to the American president. He ordered a yacht to be built for himself at an American shipyard and requested the president's daughter, Miss Alice Roosevelt, to christen it at the launching. Not to do things by half, he also dispatched his brother, Prince Henry of Prussia, as his personal representative to visit the United States on the occasion of the launching. Prince Henry came, accompanied by a retinue of keen observers who were instructed to make minutely careful notes of everything they saw. During the few weeks of their stay in the United States, they visited the largest cities as far west as St. Louis, inspecting libraries, universities, manufactories, navy yards, and battlefields, and being overwhelmed with an excessive hospitality. Prince Henry, by his easy democratic manners, did much to obliterate the memory of his tactlessness of Hong Kong in 1898 and Americans had an opportunity to show how far they had acquired the art of entertaining royal guests. It cannot be said that their achievements in this respect were very creditable. The ultra-rich displayed an effusive snobbishness which was fatuous and fulsome. The rabble, on the other hand, showed little of the decorum which marks the multitude in European countries on ceremonious occasions. Prince Henry, while in New York, was greeted through a megaphone with the words, Hello, Henry! How's your brother Bill? On another occasion, when the prince's Pullman coach was sidetracked at a little country station for the night, a band of yokels surrounded it and, beating on its sides with sticks, cried out, Wake up, Hen! Wake up, Hen! for half an hour at a time. But the prince took all these things with a good grace, and they doubtless gave a piquant flavor to the report which he carried back to his imperial brother in Berlin. End of chapter 15, part 2